Hello everyone, this is Space Cafe Podcast, and I am Marcus. I have a story for you, my friends. So during the catastrophic Apollo 13 mission on April 13, 1970, two explosions took out the main power system in the lunar module, forcing the astronauts to improvise. As we know today, they overcame the challenges they faced. I'm reading now from a letter that the Apollo 13 crew issued in the days following their successful and miraculous return, showing a little bit of insight into the small things that saved lives. As you know, due to the explosions, we were forced to ration our electrical power and water. With regard to the former, we never turned on the lights in the spacecraft after the accident. As a result, your pen lights served as our means of seeing to do the job during the many hours of darkness when the sunlight was not coming through the windows. And you know what? We never wore out even one set of those pen light batteries during the entire trip. In fact, they still illuminate today. Hmm. A guiding light now and then is useful, no matter how small or how big. Some call my guest today a guiding light in all of this that's out there. Well, perhaps not the entire universe, but at least our small, feeble human share of it. <laughs> the space industry is vast and becoming ever more obscure in its literal and not-so-literal sense. A pen light can come in handy in all of this. Please welcome my guest of this episode with me, Carissa Bryce Christensen, the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Bryce Tech Companies in the United States and the United Kingdom. With a wealth of expertise in the satellite and space industry, she's an internationally recognized expert known for her rigorous analysis and innovative data-driven strategy. Carissa co-chairs the World Economic Forum Global Future Council on Space, chairs the U.S. Board of the United Nations Affiliated Space Generation Advisory Council, and serves on various other important boards and committees. I'm honored to have her with us today. Really look forward to it. Buckle up and let's go. So you are sitting on a pile of um, very valuable information, is that right? Well, Bryce Tech uh, is an analytics uh, and engineering company. We and I are big believers in the value of evidence-based analysis and forecasting mm -hmm. to support good decision-making. Mm. And um, particularly in the area of the economics of the space industry, for many years, there were very limited data sets. And so mm -hmm. uh, in order to do the kind of work I wanted to do, uh, my teams uh, started building those data sets. So mm -hmm. we, we do have quite a number of uh, databases on space activity and modeling tools to help us predict outcomes and um, uh, uh, 
huge repository of uh, insights that we have gained over the years. And we try to bring that to bear on the relevant questions of business and policy and technology uh, and investment today. Wonderful. Shall we take a look at 2023 and then maybe a little beyond? The space industry, I, I often uh, like to uh, make the analogy when we talk about the space industry uh, to imagine if we were talking about, let's talk about the ocean industry. And of course, that could mean snorkeling, or that could mean uh, oil rigs, or that could mean uh, uh, cargo diving. transportation. Right. So it's yeah. a very diverse yes. set of industries, and and uh, uh, certainly space uh, also is a diverse set of industries. Mm. So I I think it's interesting to parse that a bit. To me, there's a very useful top level distinction to be made uh, between what I think we can call the satellite value chain, all of the aspects of producing, manufacturing, and deploying, and operating, and selling the services associated with satellites. And then the other category, I think, that encompasses, between those two, I think they encompass all space uh, uh, activities is in space activities, uh, mm -hmm. exploration and science and in-orbit manufacturing and so on. And those two broad categories are both linked, of course, by launch. Mm -hmm. And this, the, the interesting thing is that those two very broad categories have very different characteristics. The satellite value chain generally is more uh, mature, more commercially um, viable, uh, more uh, global. Um, the uh, in-space activities are uh, still more supported by government agencies, less commercially mature. In terms of growing markets, there's a great deal of interest, but they're, they're much more nascent. Mm. And so, so I think it's it's interesting to talk about those those two categories. We can, of course, uh, break space down into hundreds of sub mm. sub sub sectors. But at that top level, uh, what's coming up um, in I think varies. So thinking about the satellite value chain, what we're seeing in twenty in in twenty twenty three, the big question that I, I think the community hopes to get an answer to, or at least the beginnings of an answer to, is around the viability of massive, small satellite, low Earth orbit constellations from a business standpoint. Mm -hmm. SpaceX is deploying Starlink, uh, uh, OneWeb, uh, Kuiper, Telesat, uh, others that are in development, um, including some national uh, systems, those constellations are have driven investment, have driven launch rates, have driven uh, attention and um, uh, policy around space. And it's a very big question. H how are those businesses actually going to look? Hmm. Where are their customers going to come from? Are they going to find the customers they seek? 
Will the quality of service be competitive with the terrestrial alternatives? Um, will the price point be attractive? What does that that business outlook um, uh, hold? And we won't get a complete answer in 2023, mm -hmm. but I, I think we'll get some indications that will be very interesting. Hmm. Do you think this is the end of terrestrial telecommunication providers and that new kids are coming um, to, to the table? Or are terrestrial providers now gearing up to go into orbit with their services? So I absolutely do not think this is in any way the end of terrestrial communication providers or terrestrial communication technology. Uh, Space-based systems are not uh, dominantly better than terrestrial alternatives in many mm -hmm. respects, um, ranging from susceptibility to atmospheric interference, or rain mm -hmm. attenuation, for example, to uh, the speed and quality of service, to the cost of deploying service. So uh, terrestrial systems, I think, will continue to have an advantage uh, locally and regionally. Mm -hmm. The space constellations are interesting from the point of view of providing global services, mm -hmm. uh, serving underserved populations, populations where it's too expensive or logistically mm. difficult to, uh, to build out terrestrial yeah. uh, options. Uh, so I, I think that in, in the most successful case for LEO constellations, they will integrate with terrestrial systems and um, operate side by side with terrestrial providers, sometimes competing, sometimes cooperating. Uh, but I don't envision them as mm. dominating mm, mm. are we running the risk risk of congestion in space um of course we're talking about space traffic management but um this is maybe building up or serving as a major business opportunity right now for many players to bring their own constellations up into low earth orbit how, how do you see that certainly there's already uh There are already difficulties associated with um, human-created objects, debris in orbit. Uh, you know, you'll hear about the space station having to move out of the way of something. Mm. Uh, satellite operators deal with this continuously, having to um, uh, be aware of where there may be uh, threatening debris. Uh Large constellations that are deploying hundreds and thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit certainly create risks. Simply the the challenge of managing those satellites when they're operational and healthy uh, mm. is significant. And then uh, the the debris risk is associated with potentially the failure of a satellite and uh further the failure of its planned mechanism, whatever that may be, mm. for deorbiting. Uh, that, to me, it's, it's certainly a, an area of consideration and concern. That, to me, is a problem that is solvable by effective regulation. Mm. Mm. And uh, I think that there are, in, in every country that relies on space, uh, and that's most countries in the world, um, 
there's certain on the satellite side, there certainly is uh, there are certainly uh, pockets of awareness and attention to this issue. I don't know mm. that we've got to the point of um, concerted global regulatory mm. option that everyone is confident will be effective. Mm. Uh, uh, countries are sort of grappling with how do we do this? Who does it? Who do we co- cooperate with? What does our structure look like? What mm. what should our rules be? How how do we balance rules for preventing debris with our desire for you know, economic development and the gains that we can uh, a- achieve through um, on-orbit systems. Uh, so I, I think it's a problem. I think it's an attended-to problem. I don't think it's a solved problem. Mm. Is it solvable? Especially when it comes to consensus building. So uh, I'll point to air traffic management. Mm. And uh, is that a globally solved problem? We can certainly point to airports where there are signs that say, you know, this, this, uh, 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 where, where the FAA would say we're concerned about the safety of that airport. Mm. We can point to conflicts among countries. But overall, the global air traffic system works pretty well. There's a massive amount mm. of very safe traffic. So I, I do, I do, I am optimistic from a regulatory standpoint that the problem is solvable. The bigger problem of debris, uh, of course, there are two parts to it. One is regulating uh, the behavior and ensuring appropriate behavior of new constellations that are deployed to ensure that they are not unduly uh, uh, polluting the environment. Uh, we'll never achieve perfection, but we can, we can certainly manage mm. that effectively. There also, of course, is debris that exists from our previous decades of in-space activities, whether that's, um, you know, discarded rocket bodies or the results of failed satellites or the number of anti-satellite tests. Um, and that creates a different problem where there's not the, the there's not a, um, clear regulatory pathway to say you may not launch mm. without uh, achieving these goals it's already there it's a it's a mm. very traditional typical pollution problem and that's mm. going to take in my view uh national leadership um countries are going to have to i think it's got to be at the national level step up and step in and um uh, mm sign resources to addressing that problem as well. Mm, mm, mm. So let's um, try to extend our focus a little and from this year to maybe five years, 10 years. Where do you see, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to say the space industry right now because you were rightly directing me in the right direction that the space, in, there is no such thing as the space industry. So I should should make myself a little clearer, maybe. The ocean of space mm-hmm. engagement, <laughs> yep. maybe. So where are you seeing all this headed? Is there is there a clear direction that you're seeing? Because right now it's Leo. Um, maybe the moon um, next door, but where are we going? So that's so thinking uh, about the the medium term, let's say that five year mm. period. Uh, so we, again, I talked about the satellite value chain mm. and 
all their in in orbit activities. Satellite systems will continue to deploy. We'll be watching for their business outcomes. Uh, if a satellite system uh, that particularly a large Leo constellation uh, deploys struggles to close its business case, then uh, we'll look for what that um, how that plays out. Does another provider come in and acquire it? Does that become does the government uh, step in and get involved with that asset? Uh, so th I think that that's very much a business case mergers and acquisitions mm. uh, uh, kind of pathway that we'll be paying attention to on the satellite side. Mm -hmm. On the other activity side, exploration and science and manufacturing in space, that's the next five years is potentially extremely interesting because we've mm. seen government budgets increase globally uh, for space. And uh, we've seen in the U.S. Uh, and uh, more broadly, uh, international space station partners um, focus attention on the commercial increase in commercial activities in low Earth orbit separate from satellites. So uh, NASA, of course, is envisioning and actively involved in supporting a post-international space station future mm -hmm. uh, shaped by commercial, pro multiple commercial providers. Mm -hmm. And uh, with NASA as a customer, perhaps their anchor customer, but um, the vision goes not by any means the only customer. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a significant investment in planetary exploration, both robotic and human and uh, again, the NASA Artemis program, which has a global footprint and many international partners, uh, is is targeting a return to the moon. Mm -hmm. So there's a very dynamic commercial ecosystem around uh, that government expenditure, partly by policy. Government agencies are seeking to uh, work with uh, commercial providers in a way that's a bit different from a traditional, the government says, build me X and it should look mm. exactly like this. Um, mm. to, to the gov Government agencies are seeking to leverage commercial innovation and commercial investment and, and structure contracts differently. Mm. So, and, and also... Government agencies are spending a lot of money, and that mm. creates business opportunities. Mm. Uh, so on the on the in-space activity side, I think the next five years is going to be one of seeing where the where the the weight and the bulk of commercial interest and activity lands. Is it in biomanufacturing on on a ISS or mm -hmm. and potentially on a commercial station is it commercial human spaceflight and an expansion of tourism is it uh, ex robotic exploration by uh, countries and space agencies that have historically not been leaders in mm. space exploration how does that how does that play out and evolve mm. um, 
You mentioned the International Space Station. Do you think that the International Space Station that um, is orbiting the Earth right now is the last International Space Station of that kind? That's a what a great question. Um, uh, I certainly don't think the International Space Station is the last m major international space project. Uh, as you push the boundaries of space activity uh, and take on new challenges, there is a high degree of risk and you need a lot of capital and often uh, there's not a clear business model associated with pushing those boundaries. So in order to push those boundaries, you need international cooperation. Mm. So uh, will that be a an international lunar base? Will that be something beyond that? I, I don't mm. – I, I would hesitate to predict what that will be. But I certainly think that the space station model has been fairly successful uh, from an international point of view. Mm -hmm. And again, there are a million challenges that we can we can point to, a million mm -hmm. friction points uh, uh, between partners and uh, uh, programmatic difficulties. But overall, it's an extraordinary accomplishment. We've, through international cooperation, uh, uh, nations of the world have created a situation in which Humans have lived off the earth for the last 20 years. Mm. That to me is a uh, more than 20 years. That, that to me is, is an extraordinary success. Absolutely. Carissa, you have, <clears throat> with your company, you have vast insight in everything that, that is going on up there or will be going on up there anytime soon. Do you see any commercial projects we may not have heard of like recreational projects maybe even um, on the horizon. Are there any plans for something that's not so reported on maybe like in the commercial uh, sphere that space tourism uh, and whatnot? So uh, I think the answer to that is inevitably yes, because of the extremely high level of, commercial activity of investment interest mm. and of business innovation. Uh, I, again, what that, what that looks like uh, is, uh, you know, I could, I could speculate. I certainly mm. can't talk about any stealth projects because mm -hmm. I'd be an awfully bad consultant if I did that. <laughs> uh, I, to me, um, one of the interesting areas, so we, we hear a lot about commercial human space flight and mm. uh, human tourism, and I think there's a very substantial amount of interest in that. Uh, we've done a, a number of surveys and studies to evaluate the interest mm. of, of uh, people who can afford such activities and uh, uh, today and in broader communities in, in the future when prices come down, there's substantial interest. Mm. To me, one of the really interesting recreational aspects is um, the potential for uh, robotic applications, uh, mm. whether that is, you know, um, steering a vehicle around the moon or 
looking at what's going on in space, there's of course the um, uh, VR experience that you can have right now walking mm. around on the space station. So I, I think that will certainly be a growth area. By, by steering a vehicle around the moon, you mean like from <laughs> Earth, from from my Xbox remote control or PlayStation, or is that it, what you're referring to? That's exactly the kind of idea. Okay, <laughs> great. So let's um <clears throat> let's talk about the the launchers. Um, three names have been dominating the launcher sector for years now. Of course, we're talking about Elon and Jeff Bezos and and Virgin Galactic, of course. Um, so the question is, is it the, are they the only ones? Uh, of course, we know that there's other launchers out there, smaller companies, especially um, in, in, in Europe also. Um, but is there a true contender to SpaceX on the horizon out there? Or will they be the ones for the next years to come? So uh, I think that you are absolutely correct that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson have dominated the um, media discussion of launch. Mm. If we pull back a little bit and look at who conducts launch uh, launches, if we look at uh, uncrewed uh, launches, so no humans, just mm. typically satellites, there, uh, the French company Arian Space mm. has a substantial market share. The U.S. company, which is a joint venture between Lockheed Martin and Boeing United Launch Alliance, has a substantial share, particularly for U.S. government payloads. And SpaceX absolutely has a very substantial global share. I think it's fair to mm. say that SpaceX is the dominant uh, global launch provider at the moment. Uh, a number of Chinese uh, launch uh, companies uh, are, are also significant participants in the market, although less present um, as global competitors. Uh, so uh, there's a long-standing launch industry focused on satellites mm -hmm. where uh, again, SpaceX has been a successful disruptor and, and the, uh, captured a significant amount of market share, but is by no means the the only provider. Mm. Uh, one interesting note there is that part of the market share SpaceX has captured used to belong to Russian launch providers, which uh, were a relatively low cost and mm -hmm. I think often viewed as slightly less reliable, mm. uh, but uh, attractive options and mm. Uh, for a variety of reasons, including some performance problems, um, SpaceX has been able to capture a very substantial proportion mm -hmm. of that of, of that um, market share. So uh, then let's look at commercial uh, about a human spaceflight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that really has um, changed dramatically. So. We saw the end of the shuttle program in the U.S. U.S. astronauts for a decade traveled uh, on Russian uh, mm -hmm. uh, launchers um, to get it back and forth from the International Space Station. The commercial crew program, uh, through the commercial pr crew program, SpaceX now uh, carries humans to and from the space station. 
And that really is a dramatic change to the launch world Mm. uh, to have a commercial provider uh, uh, conducting those launches. And we've seen that expand now to commercial human missions. Mm -hmm. We had uh, the Inspiration4 mission. Uh, We had the Axiom1 mission where Mm -hmm. Axiom, which is one of the potential future commercial space stations, where that company put together a mission that flew on a SpaceX vehicle to the International Space Station with a um, a, a crew of three passengers and a, a professional mm-hmm. astronaut uh, as the um, the commander. Mm-hmm. So, there uh, in, in in commercial human spaceflight to orbit, SpaceX absolutely has has become the dominant player there. Uh, with regard to suborbital commercial mm-hmm. human spaceflight, suborbital tourism flights, there the two companies that are really shaping that market are uh, Virgin Galactic, Richard Branson, mm-hmm. and uh, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos. Both of those companies have conducted launches. Virgin still in a test mode. Uh, Blue has moved to uh, an operational mode. And that is really quite extraordinary that um, Blue has conducted a number of launches uh, with uh, uh, four to uh, uh, multiple people on each uh, mm-hmm. each capsule. Their capacity is six. I think most of their flights have had uh, four. Some have had more. Um, that's a that's quite amazing that you can write a check and go to space mm. uh, in, in in relatively short short order. Uh, Virgin was has been selling tickets for that experience for more than a decade at a price of something like two hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars US. It's varied at times. Uh, Amazon, I'm sorry, um, uh, Blue Origin. Let's cut that. Um, yeah, <laughs> Blue Origin has not published a price. They've announced some um, information that the uh, there was a an auction for the first uh, flight uh, that um, uh, of uh, uh, New Shepard that flew in the um, that that, that uh, where, where the auction uh, ended in tens of millions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the price point, I think that the market will eventually get to is a much more accessible price, something mm-hmm. closer to uh, the price that the Virgin sales have, um, have targeted for, for, uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 for many years. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's quite a change because, you know, to fly to the space station is probably a $50 million transaction. That's quite a difference from a few mm-hmm. million or even a few mm-hmm. hundred thousand. If I had some, pocket money to spend or talent to invest where should i place my bets in the in this ocean of a space industry mm. i think that uh, if you're looking for a highly reliable return on investment we would use the gold rush model and say you know don't don't go out and try to mine gold build things that the miner need miners need <laughs> so uh you know the the pickaxes and the pans and the hotels and the uh, transportation across the continent and, and so on 
Yeah, absolutely saloons. <laughs> yeah. Saloons in space. You heard it here first. <laughs> we've we've defined the big new business we, area. Absolutely, absolutely. For the Let's future. start after this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, um, yeah. Infrastructure uh, uh, elements of the supply chain. As you look at space supply chains nationally and globally, you'll find areas where there's a single supplier or areas where there's a longstanding supplier that is very costly because uh, either because it's uh, operating as a monopoly or because it is operating to an extremely high standard of uh, precision with a great deal of test and tracking that was perhaps required by a military client uh, and is not necessarily needed by a commercial provider. So mm. I, I, I think that uh, looking for gaps and weaknesses and competitive opportunities at lower tiers in the supply chain would be where I would mm. first invest. Mm. Less glamorous, but probably a bit more reliable <laughs> sure. business case point. Uh, Carissa, um, I think especially in the Western world, we are witnessing a major shift in the way we work, um, in the workforce, how it is set up, um, the kind of work we do, especially also in the wake of, of artificial intelligence. So considering that major I wouldn't. I shouldn't say turmoil, but maybe shift we're we're undergoing. Um, how can I find out if the space industry needs the expertise I have right now in my job here down here on Earth? So, how would I find out what kind of expertise is needed? The first answer I will. That's a marvelous question, and the first <laughs> point I would raise there is to say. No matter what your skill set, it is highly likely that there is a job in the space industry that maps to it. The, the space industry, the suite of space industries, like any other suite of industries, in addition to the core product that is produced, uh, requires financial, legal, communications uh, expertise, uh, so many disciplines are relevant to the industry. Uh, for example, Bryce Tech uh, uh, has on our staff a very gifted space artist, which mm -hmm. is really important for us in uh, helping to communicate some of the concepts that we want to communicate. What's really interesting around so so the 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 nature of core space technology certainly expands beyond aerospace engineers to mm. material science, to uh, coding and software and compute expertise of every variety, uh, to um, uh, analytics and machine learning and robotics and autonomy uh, 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 sort of as a suite. Uh, and then beyond that, the huge surge of investment that we've seen, and of course, the industry needs people who understand investing mm -hmm. in investment and, and uh, in investment processes. The huge sur surge of investment that we've seen, the hundreds of startups that we've seen in the last less than a decade are, are innovating, and that innovation is going to create further demand for new skill sets. For example, 
applying uh, 3D printing to large uh, space systems, to, to rockets, mm-hmm. for example, which uh, uh, is certainly happening, raises the question of completely redesigning some of those vehicles. Mm-hmm. So many designs of everything that we deal with day to day were shaped by the limits of manufacturing technology. And so there's a model where you can use additive manufacturing to build improved versions that look similar to what we're used to for engineered systems. And then there's the model that says, let's entirely reimagine what this system looks Hmm. like. Maybe you don't need separate valves. Maybe that's integrated. Hmm. And and so uh, I think there, uh, there's such potential for um, Mm. Mm. new jobs associated Mm. with space businesses. And then once you've got that extraordinary new item, the world does not work in such a way where you simply hold it up like the, you know, the, like the Lion King and, and mm. everyone flocks to it and says, this is the best mm. thing ever. Mm. Like, y- you need to understand, develop a strategy for inserting that into the marketplace, mm. uh, getting potential customers and users to be comfortable with that, uh, thinking about the broader systems that interact with that component or element and how they need to change. Uh, and so there are negotiations and there are uh, persuasive campaigns and there is a, a de- defining strategy. And, and this is why I say it's hard for me to think of a skill set or a job that is that doesn't have an analog in this broad set of mm. space industries. Mm. Um, if you want to work in space, I, I think there's there, I think there's a place for you. Now, the thing about space, which I have been so greatly appreciative of for my career in the industry is it tends to attract people who are very passionate about what they do. So um, maybe there's a little more competition than there might be mm, in another field. Um, but the upside of that is that when you spend your working life with people who care deeply about what they're doing, that's, that's a gift. That's a gift. That's um that's even more interesting than uh, a huge paycheck. Um I think to to be super honest. Um are you a, are you passionate about the space industry, about space? I am in in a way that's perhaps a bit orthogonal to to some others. I am not specifically passionate about any particular program or architecture um i am passionate about the the potential of space uh to advance humanity to help Mm. us solve problems in so many ways it's such Mm. a unique environment that drives interdisciplinary uh problem solving um around very unique problems which results in technologies and capabilities that we would not otherwise have that have spin-off benefits on earth. It, um, uh, it is to me at the core of the human spirit, uh, exploration and doing things that are hard for the sake of knowing that you mm-hmm. can do them. To me, that's fundamentally human. And I think that that's fundamentally mm-hmm. connected to space. 
And I am also very passionate professionally about analysis, about rigor, about bringing an objective viewpoint that helps people make good decisions to improve engineering, to improve outcome, to improve policies. I'm such a believer in trying to figure out the right answer without a preconceived expectation hmm. and bring that insight forward to, 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 to drive us in the right direction. Um, I, I, and it's been a, a, a great source of satisfaction, uh, you know, when, when I and we as a company have been able to help clients and policymakers uh, achieve goals that they're trying to achieve by hmm. mining, by, by, by digging out what's really going on and, and helping them um, uh, understand that. Hmm. What is it that we're doing here as humanity? Um, what, what kind of moment in history is this right now? Are we, are we growing up um, and um, extending our, our home um, upward? What is it? What is going on here? I think globally, across all technology-driven disciplines, we have been learning what it means to play with fire. Mm. We've burnt ourselves a few times. There's always a risk when you play with fire. Mm. But there's an incredible opportunity. And so to me, uh, I would like to think that humanity is at the point where we are growing into understanding how to use fire responsibly, uh, to use technology responsibly, uh, and extract the benefit without an undue cost. Hmm. That's what I think what we all hope for. At this hmm. moment in our in our global history, I would so much uh, um, love to subscribe to all this to to make this positive vision become a reality. Because this would also mean that we are at the brink of making an evolutionary leap as a society. Because I sometimes feel we are still cavemen and women down here on Earth in a very primitive state of mind when it comes to sharing resources and, and dealing with one another. So that would be a major leap that you're um, picturing here um, for all of us. I believe in learning. Hmm. I believe that individuals have the potential to learn. I believe that communities have the potential to learn. I believe that societies have the potential to learn. And I think with learning comes a better future. That's something. That's a, that's a good note to end this discussion. <laughs> um, Carissa, um, we do have two fun questions. Um, I keep repeating. Um, now it's episode 74, by the way, uh, for this podcast. And I've been asking this question each um, of my guests. And the first question is for your upcoming space um, journey. If you're invited, 
in going to a distant planet, maybe, as a tourist. So I could imagine if you do this, it's going to be a very long and boring journey because it's a vast stretch wherever you want to go. Uh, what kind of music would you bring along? Because we have a Spotify playlist for the future space traveler. And um, you're now asked to provide one tune you wouldn't want to miss on that travel, on that journey. Oh, I'm going to cheat a bit. And I'm going to say I would bring the cast album of mm -hmm. the musical Groundhog Day by okay. Tim Minchin, um, which is about uh, learning and transformation and uh, uh, the, the challenges of repetition and a long, boring time <laughs> and, the, and, and the rewards you get at the end of that. Wonderful, wonderful. And uh, question number two, this is the Space Cafe podcast. It's a coffee place. And in coffee places, you now and then energize yourself with an espresso. Now, I would like to challenge you to share an espresso for the mind with us, with me, with the audience. What kind of inspiration would you like to share with me that could help energize our audiences and myself? And you can pick whatever kind of topic you want to pick. I would uh, go with a very fundamental book, uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which I think speaks to the point that you were making, that humanity is humanity and uh, um, we, we still operate as, as, uh, as we always have in some ways. The point of one of the points of that uh, a very impactful and, and brilliant book is that Uh, science is not a linear progression. Human learning is not a linear progression. Uh, we have periods where we reject new knowledge because it doesn't fit into our understanding of, of the world. Uh, it doesn't fit into the paradigm in which we operate until, for whatever reason, uh, that paradigm is disrupted and we can see the new evidence and we can move our understanding forward. And again, I guess it's it's something of the same theme that uh, a linear a lack of linear progress and periods of frustrating repetition and uh, you know that sense of beating your head against a, a, a wall and not making progress, that that is not inconsistent with progress. That is part of the human journey toward toward knowledge and uh, a growth and improvement. It's a spiral movement, if I remember, right? Thomas Kuhn's movement. It's Absolutely. an upward, upward spiral. That's very uplifting. Wonderful. Um, Carissa Christensen, thank you so much for taking the time. It was uplifting, inspiring, and I know where I'm placing my bets now. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. If you're seeking in-depth insights in, and perspectives from the dynamic space industry, I'd like to introduce you to a new addition to the Spacewatch Global family. Introducing Space Economy Insights, a podcast by Spacewatch Global that explores the most pressing questions and emerging trends in the space industry. Your hosts, Kevin O'Connell and Emma Gatti, are experts in the field and eager to delve into topics 
such as the growth of new market segments in the space industry, the importance of inclusivity in the industry, and the interplay between space security and commerce. Tune in for thought-provoking discussions and exclusive access to the world of space. Thanks, my friends, for tuning in every other week to the Space Cafe podcast. You're making me happy. Very happy. Indeed. Bye-bye. Until next time.